Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. All right, we'll uh, bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much uh, as we were singing that song. We were reminded of last week as we talked about the Trinity and the fact that you are love. How can that be? And then in the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you and we thank you that you are, yeah, you are God. And uh, we thank you that because of it, there's this perfect love and unity and glory that, that resides in that, uh, in that so-called family of uh, circle there of love, and that you've invited us to be part of that. Uh, even though we have defiled creation, we have uh, defied you, we've rebelled against you, and still you love us so much because that's who you are, uh, that you made a way of escape. And we praise you and we thank you for that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And thank you for that wonderful song you've given us that we can worship you with. And uh, it's, uh, it's our sacrifice of praise to you, as feeble as it, as it is, we offer it to you as an offering of thanksgiving and praise. We want to glorify your name. Lord, uh, we've, just, uh, we've just relished in looking at what your word says about your existence and what you've created and who you are and all these things. And now we're coming, we're coming to a very difficult section here where we recognize that Something went terribly wrong. I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, that you would take this from some kind of a headpiece of knowledge that would somehow get to our emotions and our will. This thing about rebellion, about sin, about evil. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to our hearts uh, right now and uh, to reveal things that that we need to deal with in our lives as uh, individuals, but also as a church. And then we'll thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Barna poll, uh, 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 the George Barna group uh, polled uh, this question. They said, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And the most common uh, response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Pain and suffering, of course, are the consequence of evil. Evil is the cause. It isn't merely a problem. It is the problem. George Buchner uh, called the problem of evil the rock of atheism. And and here's some modern atheist talk. You'd think they originated the idea that evil's existence serves as an argument against God. But the Bible speaks much about this problem, asking bluntly and passionately why God permits evil and why evil people sometimes thrive while righteous uh, people suffer. 600 times or more specific terms for evil appear with thousands of other references to sin and wickedness. The problem of evil lies at the very heart of the biblical account and serves as the crux of the unfolding drama in God's grand story. That's, that's why there is this story. Barely have the first two chapters of the Bible declared that the original creation was good when a shadow falls as evil and suffering burst on the world scene. How could this have happened? 
How did it happen? So we'll begin by looking at the entrance of evil and suffering, its consequence suffering. And then we're going to look at the essence of evil. And the first thing we notice is that God allowed evil. Genesis chapter 2 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's God speaking here, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. <clears throat> God planted a beautiful garden in Eden, then placed man in it to care for it. And in the middle of the garden, God placed two trees, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them that they were free to eat of all the many, many trees, but one. God gave them one prohibition. That's it. Here are three facts we know from this story, not just from what we've read, but as the story unfolds about the serpent and so on. God planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. That's fact number one. Fact number two, God let Satan, as a snake, into the garden. Number three, God allowed Adam and Eve to choose to eat of the forbidden fruit. God didn't stop Adam and Eve from eating the fruit. God could have stopped it, but he didn't. Now, don't get me wrong. God didn't create evil, neither did he instigate it. He didn't. He didn't even tempt them. God doesn't tempt people to sin. James makes that clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Yet, he allowed for the possibility of evil and suffering. If man made a choice... If God is good, how could he allow evil to exist? And if God is all-powerful, as the argument goes, the age-old uh, argument goes, then why doesn't he stop evil? Well, next week we're going to talk about what God is doing about evil. You don't want to miss that. It's the second piece of this uh, particular message. What, and we're going to look at what God is doing about evil and suffering right now. It's considerable. It'll surprise many of you. But for today, why did he allow it in the first place? Well, the answer is rather, rather quite simple. Because love requires a free choice. We've said that before. Last week, Jesus prayed that, uh, we saw that Jesus prayed that we could join that circle of love that existed between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here's the crux of the matter. Love isn't love if it's forced. It's that simple. Now, I'm going to use the same example that I've used many, many times before. In fact, for all of these kinds of uh, the big questions of life, like where do we come from, uh, what are we here for, what, what are we supposed to be doing, where are we going, all those, those are called the big questions of life. Christians should know simple answers to those questions. And there is a simple question. Love cannot be forced. If you force it, it isn't love. I'm going to go home after this message, and it's going to be lunch, and some of my grandkids are going to be there. 
and what they do every single time, every single time, one of them will see me come in through the garage door. When they do, that one will alert all the rest, saying, Papa's home! And then they're going to come, and they're going to flock, and they're going to they're hug my legs. I'm going to have creases all over my pants. And uh, goob all over my pants, too, I might add. And, uh, but if I came into the house and I said, grandkids, get over here, Papa's in the house, and give my pants a hug, is that love? And the answer is, no, if it's forced, it's not love. If I have to say to my wife, you really need to love me, <laughs> I'm not getting much back, am I? <laughs> we want it freely given, amen? Then it's love. But when it's asked for, when it's required, it's not love. God designed it that way. And so he had to place a choice for man to make. It had to be a literal choice. Is he going to or isn't he going to? He's free to make the choice. That's an incredible gamble. The choice that God had, I mean, take away the freedom to choose and we'd be reduced to robots, isn't it true? We'd be stripped of what it means to be human, even lower than a pet. Even a dog may choose to respond with affection, though not a cat. <laughs> That's true, right? We've observed that. Now, here's the choice that God had to make. Remove all evil now by stripping away our free will, reducing us to machines for now and all eternity, or allow evil to exist now, short term, compared to eternity, wouldn't you say? Thus retaining our humanness and love for now and all eternity. Do you see the dilemma? It's really not much of a dilemma, is it? It's actually not much of a choice. Short-term pain for long-term gain. That's what we always say, right? Uh, that's what God did. And we're going to say much more about what he's doing about evil next week. God in his wisdom sees the temporal nature of our suffering, though God never tempts us to evil. Someone else in the universe, however, did and does. Satan tempted to evil. In Genesis 3, a serpent came along, tempted Eve to eat fruit from the one forbidden tree. Behind the snake, his tempter, lay the real evil personality of Satan. The apostle John points out that that ancient serpent of Genesis is none other than the devil, Satan. It's not the snake per se, but he, he disguised himself that way. Revelation 12 says, and this was the Apostle John writing, he said, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And see what Genesis says about Satan and what happened in the garden. We'll read the story now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the servant, serpent said 
to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Satan. That'd be another whole message or something. I had to take all my notes away for that. Satan, but let's just very simply look at his strategy. He tempts to evil. And he uses the same formula or strategy all the time. It begins with doubt. He raises doubt. Genesis 3, verse 1. The second part says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Satan always begins there. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? The songwriter said. And then Satan ignores the permission. Verse 16 of, of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of what? Help me. Every tree. All the trees except one. And Satan ignores all of God's blessings and all of God's permission, and he focuses on one prohibition. That's how he does it. He ignores that, uh, that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. He ignores the blessings of walking with God. He ignores the blessings of a Christian marriage and family. He ignores sexual fulfillment in marriage. He ignores all those things. He says, Nothing about those things. Third thing Satan does, and he always does this, he denies the penalty. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, this sin will not, not hurt you. In fact, you'll be fulfilled. You'll be more fully you than you've ever been. That's Satan's strategy. But let's move on. God allowed evil. We just gave one good reason. Next week we'll talk about what he's doing about it. Satan tempts us to evil. But it was man who chose to do evil. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, what? Took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The first couple fell for Satan's ruse disobeyed God's one prohibition, and immediately they faced the consequences of their disobedience. We're going to list just five. We're going to go through them quickly. There's lots of, you could have messages on each one, no doubt. But um, first came the shame and embarrassment. Genesis 3, 7 says, The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve felt exposed and launched man's first cover-up. I suppose it was called Garden Gate. <laughs> right? How quickly would we want to leave the room if every action we had ever done was displayed on our auditorium screens here? 
Isn't it true? And what if after the whole list of our actions was listed on the screens, now all the thoughts we've ever entertained were listed as well? We'd want to run. This would be an empty auditorium. Deep down, we all feel ashamed and embarrassed by our sin. We don't want people to find out. There's a man by the name of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and he once played a practical joke on 12 men. They were all very well-known, respected men, regarded as pillars of the establishment. He sent each of them a telegram with the same message in each. Flee at once, all is discovered. Within 24 hours, they had all fled the country. Virtually all of us have something we would want, not want everyone to know. Isn't it true? We often put up fig leaves or barriers around us to avoid the possibility of being found out. It might be humor. Somebody who jokes and jokes and jokes and jokes. You know why they're doing it? Because they don't want to, they don't want to leave room for you to actually go any deeper than that. They're holding you at bay. Sometimes that's the case. I'm not saying in every case. Intellect, work success, a great golf handicap, anything to keep us talking about anything but about what we're hiding. Do you see that? It resulted in broken relationship with God. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve hid from God. Many church people today have no relationship with God. They don't experience the circle of love because of sin. Some are even afraid of getting too close to church because they're afraid to confront their sins. I know of a man like that. God immediately initiated to draw Adam and Eve back into relationship. Aren't you glad? He called out, where are you? And he still does. He's still saying, where are you? There was a third thing that came with this sin and this rebellion in the garden. Birthing and work became harsh. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. To Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat, uh, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. God placed hardship and suffering upon humanity as a judgment. And we'll talk about that next week. Fourth, death entered the world. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Eight times in that chapter, it says, it names somebody, says how long they lived, and then ends by saying the same old refrain, and he died. He's making a point. God said that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, and man began to die. Mankind began to die. Fifth, broken relationships 
with people. Immediately the blame game began. I mean, in chapter 4, we've got Cain kill, killing uh, Abel over envy, and we've got uh, the violence that, uh, and, and the wickedness that, uh, that grew to, to the point in Genesis chapter 6 where God brings a flood of judgment. But take a look what happens before that. The blame game starts. The man said, when God said, uh, have you eaten of the fruit? God confronted Adam and said, did you eat of the fruit? And Adam said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, it's the serpent who deceived me and I ate. We live in a culture of blame. We blame our environment for everything. We blame our sin on our upbringing. Our parents were too restrictive, and so now we're acting out on it. You read these stories in the newspaper all the time. The blame game. We blame our economics. We were poor. That's why we killed somebody. Or we blame our inability to access more education as the reason for our sin. But the Bible says that we have no one else to blame but ourselves. James says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, his own evil desire, say that with me please, his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And of late, it has become fashionable to blame our identity. I was just being true to myself. Have you heard that one before? I'm increasingly hearing that one. They deceive themselves into thinking that they have somehow taken the moral high ground by admitting that this is who they are, and so they're simply acting on who they are. They just can't help it. They're being true to themselves. Nonsense. But let's pull the mask back on that one. We're really only saying that this is what we feel like doing. That's what that really means when we say, I'm just being true to myself. What we're really saying, if you pull the mask back, is I'm doing what I feel like doing. Isn't it true? All we're doing is admitting that we're sinners. We all are. But that's not an excuse. That's a problem. We all have that problem. But we're not animals. We're not to act on our instincts. What we feel like doing, we're to act above what we feel like doing. That is where repentance comes in. Let me show you how ridiculous this is. Suppose I continually have hateful thoughts. My response is not to be true to myself and kill somebody. Would you agree with that? How many of you have ever had a hateful thought? Raise your hand. Yeah, it should be pretty much all of us then why aren't you true to yourself and kill the person? <laughs> this auditorium would be empty. Suppose I continually have lustful thoughts. I won't ask you to raise your hand on that one. My response is not to be true to myself and lure another man's wife into my arms, is it? as being true to myself, but is that what I'm supposed to do or am I supposed to act above what I am? We're fallen in sin. 
And there's a solution to it. We're not to be true to ourselves. And when I hear Christians saying it, and by the way, the reason I'm slowing this down it, right here is because there are Christians who say this. The reason I, well, we'll get to this third one here. Suppose I continually have unloving thoughts toward my spouse. I've fallen out of love with him or her. My response is not to be true to myself and divorce him or her. That's the blame game. I'm being true to myself. That's my, it's an identity issue I've, I've got. All this and much, much more happened when Adam and Eve abused their freedom. Uh, I was reading, one, one of the uh, books that I read this summer was Amazing Grace, uh, Amazing Grace by Eric Metaxas. In the 18th century, the slaving ships were big business for the great nations. They'd uh, anchor off the African coast, purchasing natives, uh, taken captive by rival tribes. The slave traders bartered to get the finest specimens, offering alcohol, cl uh, uh, cloth, and uh, weapons. The sailors took the terrified slaves aboard, chained them uh, 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 below decks in two-foot-high pens to prevent suicide. Can you imagine that? As many as 600 lay side by side like fireplace logs, row after row. There were no toilet facilities or ventilation. The stench was indescribable. The ships had uh, not only chains, but neck collars, handcuffs, thumb screws, which, uh, which are a torture device. They sailed for weeks on end from Africa to the Caribbean islands. And the captains routinely allowed their their crew to rape female slaves. All of this is a result of the rebellion in the garden when they ate the forbidden fruit. Our problem in the West today is we actually don't think we're that bad. So let's bring it a little closer to home. This summer, uh, on one of the Sunday evenings when Fran and I were in Vancouver, I said, uh, honey, why don't we, uh, let's, let's, you want to watch uh, Schindler's List with me again? We've watched it a couple of times in the past over the years. And, uh, and uh, so even though we had seen the movie a couple of times before, it was shocking all over again. Over the years, I've intentionally resisted watching it because it's so horrific. Six million Jews systematically hunted down and exterminated, and another four million others were uh, were exterminated as well. Over 60 million people died in that war. Fran and I watched in complete silence, never saying a word to each other. And the, the callousness with which some of these guards uh, or the, peoples that, the people that ran the, the, the camps themselves with which they treated human beings was overwhelming. The, wed, uh, the head of one prison uh, took daily uh, target practice at enslaved Jews, killing them from his balcony. He would just go out in the morning, stretch, light up a cigarette casually. This is how they de depicted it. And then he would just uh, look over with his scope and then just pick them off one at a time. Then he'd take a puff of his cigarette, pick a few more off, and then he would walk back into his bedroom and make love to a woman there. 
the callousness. Another scene, you have, uh, you have a German officer who, uh, who would go and commit just grievous atrocities, would come home and sit down to a nice supper with his wife and children as they listened to Wagner music. It was stunning. But let's bring it even a little closer home. The failure to do right is as evil as doing wrong, is it not? James says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Let's talk about the ship, the St. Louis. <clears throat> the ship St. Louis, with its Jewish passengers from Germany that was seeking asylum during the World, World War II, they were escaping uh, Nazi Germany, it was turned away first from Cuba. Next, it, uh, it came to America. And President Franklin Roosevelt refused permission for it to land in the USA. Next, the ship tried to enter Canada, but was denied again. It finally returned to Europe, where the UK, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands accepted some of the passengers. Many later died when Germany invaded three of those countries. The US and Canada were fully aware that the Jews in the St. Louis already had endured Kristallnacht, and if you don't know what that is, you should, you should look it up and, and read about it. Germany's state-sponsored pogrom that resulted in hundreds of Jewish shops destroyed, synagogues burned, and thousands put in concentration camps. Yet both nations turned away these Jewish refugees. I first learned of this when I visited the Yed Vashem Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. I stood stunned as I read about it. I realized we were part of it. I will never forget the feeling that came over me when I realized we were culpable. We were part of it. We speak of Germany's evil, but both the U.S. and Canada didn't care enough about these defenseless people, and many died as a result. Now, had Germany, think about this, had Germany not threatened the West, but simply executed millions of Jews within its borders, would we have come to their defense? That's the question. If we had had no other interests, perhaps the answer is found in what happened 50 years later, 1994. In just 100 days, 800,000 Tutsis, minority, were slaughtered by the Hutu majority in Rwanda while the world nation stood idly by. They had no, there were no interests there that they valued. We, we think we're made of better stuff, but we're actually part of the same fallen race. Is it not so? I've often wondered, if I had been born in a different place and time, under the same circumstances, would I have fared any better? That's why the Bible teaches that all of us are evildoers. Ephesians 2 says... All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, all, we were by nature objects of wrath. We've all contributed to the evil and suffering in this world. 
Some of history's monsters came from homes in which they experienced abandonment or neglect or, uh, or beatings or a so-called absent father or parent. Now, that didn't excuse them for what they were doing. They will be held accountable for what they've done. But those parents also added to the evil and the suffering. That means such parents, though not entirely responsible for what their offspring did, contributed to the world's evil. In 1908, the London Times asked various writers for essays on the topic, what's wrong with the world? One famous writer responded this way. Listen carefully. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. He's a brilliant writer, by the way. Probably the shortest essay ever written. I am. He got it. He got it. That was the problem. Well, let's talk about the essence of evil then. The first thing I want to demonstrate and show you is that our sins always, sin and evil, always hurt others. Let's take a closer look at this. I, I, I can just hear somebody sitting there and, and objecting and saying, wait a minute, Ray. Are you telling me this, uh, that all that happened, all this stuff that you just read, you know, that you just talked to us about, all this happened because one bite of a forbidden fruit? Exactly. That's exactly what the Bible says. Now think about this. No one was beat up, were they? In the garden. Was anybody beat up? No. No one was raped. No one was murdered. No one was tortured. No one was kidnapped. No one committed adultery with another man's wife. No one committed incest. No molestation. No enslavement. No kids suffering from an ugly divorce or abandonment. No theft. No one lied or bore false witness against another. No one was slandered, maligned, or falsely accused. In other words, no one got hurt. But now I'm going to say something profound. This is profound. No one got hurt, and yet everyone got hurt. Sin spread to all of humanity, and all those things I described and many more were the result of what happened in the garden. And the New Testament bears witness to that. Wow. All because someone took one bite of a forbidden fruit that technically didn't hurt anyone. And yet it hurt everyone. You see, there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't hurt others. The Genesis story of the forbidden fruit unequivocally or clearly states or declares that truth. All sin hurts others and is therefore unloving. When Fran and I committed fornication, that's sex before marriage, over 40 years ago, almost 45 years ago, we fell for that same lie, it doesn't hurt anyone. We're getting married anyway, and no one will know. How harmless is that? 
What we didn't know is that we set in motion something that would cause our family great heartache and pain and grief 20 years later. For you see, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul indicates something we didn't understand then. It says, in your anger do not sin, and do not give the devil a foothold. When we sin, when we rebel against God, we are changing our allegiance from God to Satan, and we give him a foothold into our lives. And then he can do damage in our, fam in our families or our relationships. Two of our four children went down that exact same road, but much, much worse. And none of them knew what we had done when we were teens. It's not because we modeled it. They didn't know. Nobody knew. Just we knew the sin. We and God knew the sin we had committed. But you see, our sin gave the devil a foothold into our family. The Holy Spirit revealed to Fran and I that we had greatly contributed to the evil that came into our family. And we have both wept over it. We didn't just say sorry brush it off. We have literally wept over it. When you've when you got to deal with this for 10 years in your family, you realize just how bad it is. Every and any sin will hurt others, and sin won't just harm your family, but any relationships. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to stay single, and that'll solve the problem. No. You give, this, you give the devil a foothold into your life, it'll affect others. If you are a Christian and you sin along with or even agree with the sins of the culture, then instead of being salt and light, part of the solution, you just tip the scales of an increasingly wicked culture even further. There is no such thing as being on the fence. You're either with God or you're against God. You are, in fact, an accessory, accessory to the evil they are doing and the evil they intend to do. Either by vocal support, by association, by modeling, or even silence, you will be part of making others stumble and, and fall further into sin. There is no neutral ground on this. Second Corinthians says, therefore, Paul said, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. But there's even more to consider. Not only, as we're looking at the essence of sin, not only does sin, all sin, hurt others, our sins always strip God of his glory. God gave Adam and Eve one prohibition, and he meant it. Because they were made in the image of God, they were made to be creatures of choice. They could choose to reflect God, thereby glorifying him, or they could choose not to reflect God, thereby diminishing his glory. God still has commands for us to obey. He still requires us to be holy. Peter, the apostle Peter in... Uh, repeating what we see uh, stated in the Old Testament Scripture, says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. God is bringing wellness and wholeness to the human race. That's what he's doing. We're going to be talking about it in the weeks to come. Because he won't force it on anyone, thereby dehumanizing them, because that wouldn't be love, 
He works through voluntary persuasion. And nothing is more persuasive than holy people. People who themselves are emotionally, spiritually, mentally well and whole, who are in love with their God and are at peace with Him and those around them. During the Welsh revival of the early 20th century, listen to this, a hundred thousand people came to Christ in six months. Is that a lot? That's amazing. And it turned the world upside down at that time. During that time of great harvest and ingathering, however, a sermon preached to lost people was rarely heard. Did you hear that? During the Welsh Revival, 100,000 people come to Christ in six months. And it's happening under preaching, but rarely was any message preached to lost people. It was preached to God's people. That's astounding. Sermons were preached there, and when the world saw God's people realizing how serious sin was in their lives, it brought them under severe conviction. Now, the opposite is also true. A non-holy person can dissuade people from God. Henry Blackaby um, taught, uh, gives a credible illustration. A friend of his, who was a pastor, began to have an affair with a woman in the church. Blackaby and another friend immediately went to him and with all urgency told him to turn from his sin. But the pastor disregarded the counsel, continued the relationship, divorced his wife, left the church he was pastoring, created great tragedy in the church and great sorrow with his children. A few years later, Blackaby was leading a conference, speaking on denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ. His former pastor was there that night. God brought him under tremendous conviction, and he met with Blackaby after the service. He began to weep and acknowledged, I have grievously dishonored my Lord. I have deeply sinned against my wife and my children and God's people. Would you pray for me? Now, I want you to listen to how Blackaby responded. Oh, my brother, he said, I will. But let me tell you how I am going to pray. I'm going to pray that in your returning to God, he will forgive you, but that he will deal with you in such a way that anybody who sees it will be forever deterred from even thinking about committing this grievous sin. The pastor's face dropped. But Blackaby wasn't finished. He said, I am more concerned about restoring God's name in the hearts of the people than restoring your life. Now, we all need forgiveness from the past like the adulterous woman, like Fran and I did. But once we take on God's name and we become his child, he expects us to behave like one of his children because it reflects on him, and he takes that very seriously. God calls sin rebellion. This is no small matter to God. And God did with King David what Blackaby prayed. That's exactly what God did. What Blackaby prayed was exactly how God did it with King David. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, finally married her. God confronted David with his sin. You say, see, God forgave him. Mercifully, yes. God loved David, and David went to heaven when he died. He had done many wonderful things on behalf of God, but because David deliberately sinned against the God who had so blessed him, God disciplined David in Several severe ways. 
we'll look at two. The first thing was, he announced through Nathan the prophet, the sword will, will not leave your family. In other words, there's going to be much bloodshed in your family from here on in. It's a judgment. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Of course, we see David's son Absalom. He killed his brother Amnon for raping their sister Tamar. Is that a sordid story? Is that, just an, is that just the most awful thing you've ever heard? When Absalom and his, fa uh, and his army fought against his own father, Joab murdered Absalom, son of David, despite David's clear instruction not to. Adonijah, another brother and another son of David, next in age to Absalom, staged a coup to grab the throne before Solomon, David's chosen, and he was finally executed by Solomon, another brother and another son of David. What tragedy, what sorrow in the family, all because he dishonored and disrespected God and stripped God of the glory due him. Let's take a look at this. Here's another thing. The son born to you will die. He, uh, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. They had a son. And uh, part of the judgment was that son will die. The son born to you will die, and after Nathan had gone home, that's the prophet that announced it, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. Sound severe? It is. But look at the reason. 2 Samuel 12, 14 says, But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. There it is, right there. Yes, what David did hurt others. No question about it. But not all sins hurt in the exact same way. It hurt others, but even worse was that his rebellion stripped God of his glory. He dishonored him. He disrespected him in front of the entire world, in front of all the angelic hosts in the heavenlies, in front of the satanic hosts that would have been laughing and mocking God, and in front of a watching world. He was the head of a country. And God's enemies held God in contempt rather than give God glory. When we sin, we always hurt others, and we always dishonor or strip God of his glory. That is the essence of sin and evil. And that is the antithesis, the exact opposite, in other words, of the two greatest commands, which are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. When we hurt others, we are not loving others. And when we, and when we dishonor and disrespect God and strip him of his glory, we are not loving God. Would you agree? And so in that sense, we understand, we come to see the very essence of what evil and sin is, and that it is the complete antithesis or opposite of the two greatest commands. Wow. Through the persuasion of a good example, God wanted Israel to be a light to the nations of what kind of God he was. One uh, who through his ways brought about goodness and wholeness for mankind. But it didn't make a difference in God's own poster child, who is David. Why should God's enemies follow God's ways then? 
Do you see the problem? And how could God be holy and just in judging them if his own poster child acted in the same manner as they did? When we are unholy, for example, and don't forgive our brother or sister, we sin against God and cause his enemies to blaspheme his name. When we are unholy and don't keep the marriage vows we made, we sin against God. And I'm not talking about somebody who's been abandoned. I'm talking about the person who did it. We sin against God and cause his enemies to blaspheme his name or strip him of his glory. When we are unholy and watch or look at things that are sinful, we sin against God and cause his enemies to blaspheme his name. And when we are unholy, we cause little ones to stumble. That's why God said it'd be better for them to have a millstone put around their neck and thrown into a river than to cause a little one to stumble and have to face me for, for that for eternity. That's why God is so radical about this to the point of bringing discipline into our lives. Now, I, I, we're almost done here, but there's something very important that I, that I want to say here right now. If we get, you listen to a message like this, and you say, well, one of my sins got named there, and we get defensive about it, or we get sullen about it, we haven't truly repented. In fact, if one of the sins that we've committed and, and grievously sinned against God and against others, and one of, those sin, uh, one of those sins is mentioned, we should become a cheerleader of that. In the same way that I say, as I admitted what we've done and the, the awful thing that's a, that it did in our family, that's a warning. And if you've committed some of these sins that we've talked about, what you should be doing is now, you should be saying in your heart, if not out loud, you should be saying, preach it, brother, preach it. And warn the other ones so that they don't do what I've done. Because if you do that, then God can take your rebellion and the sin that, if you've repented already, the, the sin that you've committed, and he can redeem it and turn it into something positive. This is very serious. First Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We're moving into very difficult, towards very difficult days. God wants to raise up a church, and one of the things that we've emphasized for decades now is the churches need to be praying churches. And Sutherland is becoming known for being a praying church. But a praying church that is not a holy church makes no difference whatsoever. She must be a praying church and a holy church at the same time. Amen? And that means we need to get before God and allow Him to reveal to us the seriousness of our sin, and then we need to repent of it and turn from it and flee from it and quit playing with it. And we need to warn others, don't do that. And if the world will see that Southland Church and the church in the region and the church in Canada is getting serious about its sin, 
then just as what happened in the Welsh revival, the world will be convicted of her sin, but right now she doesn't want to be saved from anything because she doesn't see that she needs to be saved from anything we don't need to be saved from. This is the way to renewal. This is the way to evangelism. A complete change of heart. I'm going to give you a few moments right now. And the question that I want to ask you is this. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, forgive me for my part in the world's sin? And then truly repented and walked away from your sin. I'm going to give you a few moments right now, not many, to reflect on that, to pray and say, God, there's a sin I've been playing with, and I am so done with it. I pray that you'd bring real conviction in my life. And this is what I'm praying for our church, that either we repent or God disciplines us. He'll do it. Because it's serious. His name is at stake. And a lot of people's eternal lives are at stake. So let's just bow our heads in reverence and quiet and let the Holy Spirit search our hearts, convict where necessary. And let's do business with God. Lord, we recognize it's not the other guy. It's not the other person. It's us. Like G.K. Chesterton said, we confess it's us. And Lord, we repent of our sin. We turn from it. We say, Lord, I ask you, Lord, to bring a spirit of deep conviction and repentance upon Southland Church. That no longer would it be said of her that she tolerates unholiness in her midst. That her people play with sin the same way the unbelievers do. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a holy church a holy praying church, an obedient church, a submissive church, a church fully in love with you, but not, not, this, not this love without holiness, true love that obeys. Make us that kind of church so that we can be the salt and light for these last days and for what, what we're facing. We thank you that you're going to hear and answer those prayers as you always answer those kinds of prayers. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.